Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Warenga and by Stuart Weir. And on this week's show, we look ahead to the FIFA Women's World Cup, which is just two weeks away. And among the teams having unrest in camp ahead of the tournament are Nigeria and South Africa. Also, we speak to Nigeria and Southampton forward Joe Aribo, who tells us about the disappointment of getting relegated with Southampton. Obviously, I had all of these goals and what I wanted to do, etc. Also, like, for the team, to help the team, but... Um, I didn't. I don't feel I got the chance to do that, and um, it was really frustrating. That's coming later. Also, Stuart looks at the impact that relegation has on clubs and communities, and Stuart takes a look at the role of reserve goalkeepers, many of whom spend most of the season sitting on the bench and hardly playing at all. That's an interesting one. We start at the Under-23 Africa Cup of Nations in Morocco. The tournament ends this weekend with Egypt playing Morocco in the final and Mali face Guinea in the third-place match. Now, the top three teams qualify for the Paris Olympics next year and the fourth-place team goes into a playoff against an Asian side for a place at the Olympics. So Morocco and Egypt booked their places with semi-final wins. Morocco beat Mali on penalties after a 2-2 draw, so that was nail-biting for the hosts, while Egypt beat Guinea 1-0. So either Mali or Guinea will also qualify automatically. Um, Ida, what do you think of the credentials of Morocco and Egypt as Africa's representatives at the Olympics? Well, Steve, both countries do have some experience, at least over the last few decades in the competition, but they didn't progress too far. You see, Steve, the Olympics has not favored North Africa because, as we know, the continent's success came from back-to-back gold medals by Nigeria in 96 first and then Cameroon four years later in Australia. So both Egypt and Morocco, they should aim for a top three finish for Africa at the least. The last team to finish in the podium was, you guessed it, Nigeria. (laughs) That was with a silver during the 2016 edition held in Brazil. That's pretty recently. So the North Africans, Steve, should really look to cement their own history and their own mark in the competition that's, you know, perhaps favoured sub-Saharan Africa in the past. Yeah, indeed. And we'll see whether Mali or Guinea will join Morocco and Egypt with automatic qualification, whether it is Mali or Guinea. For either team, it would be a second Olympics appearance for them. Now, the FIFA Women's World Cup is just two weeks away. Australia and New Zealand hosting, and there are four African teams. That's Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa, and Zambia representing the continent. Um, A bit concerning, Ida, that South Africa and Nigeria have had much publicized issues in their preparations. Concerning, Steve, but frankly, not all the way surprising. It's the age-old issues of team versus federation and just all-round disregard of the women's game by the same federations that are supposed to be helping them. It's been more of the same old, same old with Nigeria. 
The NFF cancelled a camp for the girls to prep, gel, and then travel together ahead of the tournament. And let's not forget at last year's Wafkin, the NFF hadn't paid the girls their dues as usual. And this forced the players to boycott training ahead of their bronze match against Zambia. I mean, we saw similar things happen even at the last World Cup in France, you know, with Nigeria staging a sit-in. So look, it only gets to a point of just more and more despondence. This time round, the Super Falcons are in the same group as Olympic champions Canada, who, in an interesting twist, are also going through similar issues with their federation, Canada Soccer, who have made massive, massive budget cuts. Looking at South Africa, well, Banyana Banyana Steve will not be paid by their federation for playing at the World Cup. Safa's reasoning is that the players will already each receive $30,000 in appearance fees from FIFA. Now, this, at least to me, isn't something that would go down just so easily with a men's team, for example. Steve, it doesn't matter the amount coming in from FIFA because at the end of the day, the players aren't playing for FIFA. They are representing their country. So Safa's logic is baffling, to say the least. It looks like it's trying to save on a quick buck that rightfully belongs to the girls. And who knows which pocket it goes to alternatively. And you see the constant disregard of women more even with a pitch that Banyana were given to play their send-off match. Now, it's a pitch outside of the capital that doesn't even host men's league games, yet it was deemed okay somehow for the African champions. Steve, once again, a friendly reminder that these women have earned the chance to play at a World Cup. And I feel like I have to keep emphasizing this because it seems lost on the authorities. The Federation directed the girls to play at the Tsakane Stadium, whose pitch is made of clay and grass, material Steve, and a surface that can easily cause injuries to the players, weeks to the biggest tournament of their careers. The team had requested one of the 2010 World Cup venues, World Cup stadiums, as a possible match venue, something that would not even be a second thought, I would imagine, for the men's team. But this request was denied, and the team was actually threatened with punishment if they boycotted. So the senior players did boycott. However, the team did field a young squad for purposes of play, including 13-year-olds playing in the team. So that was quite an embarrassment for Safa. And in usual fashion, a stopgap measure came in last minute with uh, the Motsepe Foundation, giving the team $320,000 to be shared out amongst the 23 players going to the World Cup. But Steve, this is a band-aid on a larger systemic issue. And the problem will keep repeating itself as we have seen over the decades. These are the reigning African champions, as well as the country that's bidding to host the next Women's World Cup in 2027. So going by those two things alone, Steve, South Africa should be leading by example.
Yeah, very concerning uh, with uh, South Africa. There do seem to be some uh, deep-rooted problems uh, as a whole at the uh, South African uh, Football Association. Uh, for Nigeria, the Super Falcons coach uh, Randy Waldrum uh, claiming that he's owed seven-month salary and uh, also claiming that uh, some players have been owed money for two years, although the uh, Nigeria Football Federation uh, were rubbishing his uh, allegations. We're next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to our interview with Nigeria and Southampton forward Joe Aribo. Now, Aribo moved from Scottish club Rangers to Southampton a year ago, but his debut season in the English Premier League saw the Saints, the first team relegated. Aribo spoke to Planet Sport Football Africa's Oluwashina Okaleji, who first asked how he would sum up the season. For me, very frustrating. Uh, it was tough because you wanna you wanna do so well for yourself, you know. I st- I had a new challenge and I wanted to um to hit the ground running and obviously I had all of these goals and what I wanted to do, etc. Also like for the team to help the team, but um, I didn't I don't feel I got the chance to do that and um, it was really frustrating. Uh, it was a, le- a season of learning. But also, I think I needed that season um, because uh, it was God that put me in that situation and I've learnt that he doesn't do it for no reason. So there was a reason behind it. Uh, Right now I'm questioning the reason, but um, we just have to put our faith in God and trust. Uh, Yeah, that's mainly mainly it. I don't know, you've never suffered relegation before, Mm -hmm. so that feeling must be different. Yeah, um, it's really frustrating. Uh, you, you kind of don't know what to do with yourself because um, for me, like you said, I've never experienced it. So I didn't know how to take it and it was a bitter one to take. But another one that, another reason why it was so bitter for me is because I didn't really get the chance, like a proper chance I feel to to help the team. So like just seeing it all unfold was really upsetting for me. Looking back on games like Ukraine, Brazil, some some of the fine, finest games in Super Eagles Colors that you've had and all that, I'm pretty sure you must be looking forward to not just testing yourself against other African teams, mm. but of course, doing well for Nigeria. But f- like you pointed out, you need to qualify. Mm. How crucial is it for you to even just lay a marker at the African Cup of Nations, knowing that everyone back home wants you guys to even win, not even qualify? Mm-hmm. Nigerians are not thinking of that. Yeah. Um Every single time we go into a tournament, we want to win. Yeah. That we aim to win. Uh, mm. For me, especially, like I'm a fighter, so I want to win every game I play in. Mm. Mm. Um, I think it's really important for us to just take every game as it comes. We can't look too far forward. We have to take every game as it comes, 100%, and literally showcase what we have because the the talent in this squad is really is is up there. It's really good. So I just think we take every game as it comes and. Just get the results that we need, put in performances that we need also. You're born in England? Yeah. Representing Nigeria, what does it mean to you? Um, when I was a kid, I, used, I watched Nigeria when I was growing up, so uh, it was always a dream for me to play for Nigeria. Yeah, I've always wanted to play for Nigeria. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just truly an honour for me to win it, um, to play. It's a dream come true, of course. Your family, how have they taken everything in? Like, you know, you go every time, you fly out to Nigeria... Mm. You come back, maybe they follow the game on TV, or how do they follow your game? Um, my dad comes, so he travels to Nigeria quite a bit. If he's here, he'll come and watch me play, regardless of where I am. 
So it's really good to have that like support system. My mum will watch at home with my siblings. So Joe Aribo there speaking about his disappointment of getting relegated with Southampton and how he dealt with it、uh, as a Christian. Now we also spoke to Aribo a year ago when he had experienced mixed fortunes: a season where he won the Scottish title with Rangers but lost the Europa League final; also missing out on World Cup qualification with Nigeria losing to Ghana in their playoff tie, and making a round of 16 exit at the Africa Cup of Nations when the Super Eagles. Look like they could have gone all the way. I say it's been a very good one. As you know, football is like a roller coaster. It has, it has its ups and downs,、um, but I've enjoyed it.、Uh, it's been a long season. I'll just say that for sure.、I've、played a lot of games, but yeah, as a whole, it's been good. I'm happy to get silverware.、Uh, a bit disappointed about the league, but to win a trophy is good. Good, nice feeling. When you talk about disappointment, the Afcon didn't go well for Nigeria. You also wanted to go to the World Cup, it didn't happen. You lost an European Cup final. I mean, for a player, that must really be tough. Yeah,、um, I think it, it, it was difficult、um, to take it, but it wasn't going to plan.、Uh, God has a plan for us, and it wasn't meant to be. So I think we can't question God.、Uh, we just need to trust and believe in what He has planned for us. And I think when when you suffer something that's disappointing,、um, of course it's a natural feeling to be down or upset. But、um, there's always another game coming, and you can't dwell on those things. And we just have to move forward and keep moving forward. So yeah. Every time you talk, you talk by God's grace, by God's grace. Now,、um, are you a Christian? Do you really? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, strong believer.、Um, I know that without God, I wouldn't be doing this. He gives me, He's given me this talent, the strength, and. Yeah, I'm just thankful to God for everything that's going my way. I just think God has a plan for everyone, and with me, I think He's putting me on a pedestal to let people know that God does do wonders and miracles. Because where I've come from to where I am now, it's only God. This can't be. It's not man-made. So, yeah, I just think if you look at my life and what's going on with me, then you truly be- believe. That God is out there and working wonders. That's Nigeria and Southampton forward Joe Aribo speaking a year ago there about his faith and his football. And in the other interview we had、uh, just now, he spoke about the disappointment of relegation this season with Southampton, and he said that he believes that God allowed it to happen for a reason, even though he's still questioning why. Well, our European football expert Stuart Weir joins us, and Stuart works with the Christian sports people, especially in athletics. And、uh, that's a big question, Stuart, on how an athlete or a sports person can handle defeat, disappointment, failure, injury, and other challenges、uh, when they might have prayed to God for success. That's a great question, Steve. I mean, to paraphrase it, does God care who wins? Or does God choose who wins? I've never been totally comfortable with athletes saying God made me win, because that seems to imply that God then wanted someone else to lose. I definitely see our sporting ability as a gift from God, which we develop and use to the best of our ability. But even if you are the best at your sport in the world, you sometimes lose. Sometimes you lose because the opponent is better. Sometimes you outplay the opponent, but they get a lucky goal and win the game. And sometimes, dare we say it, the officials make a mistake which decides the outcome. When I talk to athletes, I try to help them understand that their significance as people 
is that they are human beings created by God and as a Christian, I would add, people for whom Jesus died. They are no more significant as people if they win the Premier League and no less significant if they're relegated. In professional sport, you win and you lose. And it's important not to allow yourself to think that your value as a person is dependent on whether you win or lose. You often hear Christian athletes saying that God helped them to win and thanking God for the victory. But when they lose, you rarely hear anyone thanking God that they lost. Hmm. I love the words attributed to the old Olympic 400-meter medalist Eric Little, who said, God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. I think it's important that he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, not when I win. People often think of worship as something you do one day a week in a particularly holy place. But the point that Little is making is that you can worship God all the time, even when running or playing football, by recognising God as the source of your gifts and giving them to God. Olivier Giroud, the former Chelsea, Arsenal and now AC Milan player, and of course a World Cup winner, talks about having a little chat with Jesus before every match, and he ends his autobiography with the words, Thank you, Jesus, for your love. You give me the strength to always believe. That's an attitude I'm much more comfortable with than the thank you for helping me to win. Well, thanks, Stuart, and we love to hear your thoughts on this on social media this week. Uh, what do you think? Does God care who wins? So we heard there from Nigeria's Joe Aribo on the disappointment of relegation with Southampton. Uh, he's a Christian. He told us about the disappointment and that he believes that God allowed it to happen for a reason, even though right now he's still questioning why. Uh, so if you are a believer, do you think that God minds who wins? Does he mind who the champions are and who gets relegated? You can give us your thoughts on Facebook. That's on our page, Planet Sport Football Africa. Or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Does God care who wins and who loses, who the champions are and who gets relegated? Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa brought to you by Passion for Sport. Still to come, more from Stuart on what it's like being a reserve goalkeeper and hardly playing at all the entire season. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. You can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download the app, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Very convenient way to follow the show on our app. Let's go to social media now. Last week we asked, which player would you like your team to sign ahead of the new season? There have been plenty of big money moves already in the European transfer market with Jude Bellingham going to Real Madrid and Declan Rice to Arsenal among the most notable. Uh, there is still a long way to go, so we asked which player would you like your favourite team to sign? Uh, not surprisingly, the two names that came up the most were Harry Kane and Victor Osimhen. Um, before Robin says, I'm a Bayern Munich fan hoping that we'll sign Harry Kane. Uh, Bakary Tamba and the Gambia says, I hope Harry Kane will join my team, Manchester United. 
Among those rooting for Victor Osimhen is Aminu Kuta in Nigeria, saying I hope Osimhen will move to Manchester United. And Taiwo Ardiemi, also in Nigeria, says I hope that Osimhen can join my club, Bayern Munich. Other contributions came from Morgan Emma in the Gambia, saying I'm a big fan of Chelsea. We need uh, two midfielders and a goalkeeper and to balance the books from last season. Uh, then we can bounce back, uh, says Morgan, without naming any names in particular. And uh, David Zulu in Zambia says, My team's Manchester United. I'd love to have Kylian Mbappe from Paris Saint-Germain. In that case, it'll be 100% no doubt that we could lift uh, the uh, UEFA Champions League with this young man uh, in our strike force says a uh, very hopeful uh, David Zulu and uh, finally in Ghana Superior Abdallah says uh, I hope that uh, Romelu Lukaku will move from Chelsea to my team Inter Milan uh, looks as though it could be going that way that Inter might uh, be getting Lukaku permanently uh, we'll see what happens there well, thanks very much for those comments. Always great to hear from you here on Planet Sport Football Africa. Let's go back to Stuart Weir in the UK now. And we talked about uh, the disappointment of relegation, hearing from Nigeria and Southampton for Joe Aribo. Also, Stuart, the impact of relegation uh, is uh, very big uh, on clubs and on communities too. Well, yeah, we're talking about the Joe Ariba being relegated with Southampton. And, of course, it was Southampton, Leicester City and Leeds United relegated at the end of uh, last season. All of them well-established Premier League clubs. And the impact of relegation will be massive, not only on the clubs, but also on their cities. Take Leicester City. It's just seven years since they were Premier League champions and 300,000 people lined the streets of the city to celebrate their team's victory and particularly noticeable where there were loads of Muslim women who had probably never watched a game of football in their lives but who recognised that something very significant was happening in their city. And academics at the local university estimated that the value of that league title to Leicester City was more than a billion dollars, given that the Premier League football is watched by 3 billion TV viewers in 200 countries, and that an estimated half a million tourists come to England each year specifically to watch football. And research at the University of Chichester suggested that Brighton and Hove Albion's first season in the Premier League contributed... $300 million to the town's economy. Duncan Holley, a historian from Southampton, said that he thought that Premier League football had put Southampton on the map and apparently applications to study at Southampton University are higher when the club is doing well in the Premier League. And while Relegated clubs get $50 million in the so-called parachute payments, again... Revenue may drop by 50% so that the parachute payment could easily not cover half the cost. In 2022, Burnley, Watford and Norwich City were relegated and well, Burnley bounced back the next year, but Watford and Norwich are still in the championship. Time will tell if this year's three relegated clubs get back quickly, but if they don't, the emotional an economic effect on supporters and on the city could be a lot more significant than you realise. Well, very, very interesting that, uh, yeah, so so significant uh, to stay up in the Premier League uh, if you can. 
And um, always interested, Stuart, uh, that uh, clubs uh, have uh, usually three goalkeepers and uh, one of them is usually the main choice. I often wonder what it's like being a uh, reserve goalkeeper with a club. Steve, how would you like a job with a radio station where you are expected to prepare scripts, rehearse, but never actually present them? The question sounds silly, but that is the reality for a reserve goalkeeper in the Premier League. There are a 100 professional goalkeepers in the Premier League. That's an average of five per club. Chelsea have got eight. Most clubs would have their first choice keeper and two reserves who are deemed to be good enough and experienced enough to play. Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest had injuries this season and all three of their keepers played. Some teams will have a dedicated cup goalkeeper. Uh, For example, Manchester City in the Premier League and the Champions League picked Ederson. But when they played in the League Cup and the FA Cup, including the FA Cup final, Stefan Ortega played in 11 cup ties. His league record, though, was played three, unused sub 35 times. Arsenal have three current international keepers, but as Aaron Ramsdale played all 38 league games... The other two didn't get a game at all. Ten of the 20 first-choice Premier League keepers played 35 or more league games, meaning that their understudies got sort of one, two or three games. And Willie Caballero is 41, and he's made a second career as a backup keeper. In the past six years at Chelsea and Southampton, he's been well paid, but started 13 league games in six seasons. And Caballero expressed the dilemma brilliantly. He said, I want to help the younger keepers improve and make the team win. But doing that actually means that I'm less likely to play myself. There have been several occasions this season when the first choice goalkeeper is displaced during the season. Example, Edward Mendy losing his place to Kepa at Chelsea. Jason Steele replacing Spanish international Sanchez at Brighton, and Fraser Foster being preferred to Hugo Lloris at Tottenham late in the season. Some of those due to a change of manager. And at the bottom of the table, Southampton, Alex McCarthy replaced Gavin Bazuna, and Danny Ward lost his place to Everson at Leicester. Relegation panic and changes of manager factors there. For a keeper in his late 30s, say... As being a second or third keeper is a great way to stay in the game, earn good money. For younger keepers, there's the hope that you will become the number one. I, mean, I remember talking to Tim Howard when he was the Manchester United number two to Edwin van der Sar, one of the best in the world at the time. And I asked Howard, how did he cope with a scenario of training, knowing he was unlikely to play much that season? He replied, I see a different scenario. You become a professional footballer because you want to play football and as a reserve keeper, you earn good money, but you don't actually play. It's a funny old game. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, getting paid for not doing a lot <laughs> when you want to be uh, playing as much as you can. And we talked a lot about the um, Saudi Arabian Pro League, Stuart. Uh, big name players moving there. Uh, big name manager uh, Stephen Gerrard uh, has gone to Saudi Arabia. Yes, to be manager of Al Etafak. Gerard, of course, was one of the greatest players of his generation, playing over 500 league games for Liverpool, 
over a hundred times for England as a stylish attacking midfield player. He was a one-club player, 18 seasons at Liverpool. Then he was manager of Glasgow Rangers in Scotland and in just under four seasons he guided Rangers to their first league title in 10 years. He was then headhunted by Aston Villa but was gone within a year. Villa were 14th when he came and 14th when he left and that wasn't good enough for the owners. The word in the street at the time was he would work for Villa for a few seasons and then succeed Jurgen Klopp back at Liverpool, but that didn't happen. Now, I'm sure he will be on a good salary in Saudi Arabia, but the reality is that eight months after leaving Aston Villa, he's not been offered another job, and he's opted to go to Saudi Arabia to keep working. And I suspect he won't be the last ex-Premier League manager to go there. And Steve, I have another interesting story for you. Forest Green Rovers in League Two um, sacked Duncan Ferguson, the former Everton coach, last week. And they have appointed Hannah Dingley, who was their academy manager for the last four years, as the caretaker boss, making her the first woman to manage a professional men's team in English football. I think it would be great to see her succeed. Oh, well, yeah, it'd be great if uh, that does a workout as she gets the job uh, permanently. Thanks so much, Stuart. Uh, That's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Zimbabwe, from Stuart Weir and from Ida Waringa, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.